And if you would, turn in your Bibles to the letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, chapter 6. You'll find this on page 1180 of your Bible, page 1180, 1 Timothy, chapter 6. In our study of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, we've just finished hearing Paul as he takes apart, as it were, the false teachers for their new doctrine, their endless fighting, and their selfish motivations. Paul ends by saying that the false teachers, quote, this is the end of verse 5, imagine delusion, they imagine godliness as a means of gain. They've departed from the simplicity and beauty of Christ-centered preaching and teaching to a new speculative faith in which they are the founders, not Paul. And as the gurus of their faith, they can now charge to initiate people into these new mysteries. As science fiction writer and founder of the religion of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard once said, quote, if you want to get rich, start a religion. And that's exactly what he did. To us today, this might sound uh, utterly foolish, even ridiculous. But as often is the case in the New Testament, we should be really thankful for this difficulty because it prompted Paul to write the beautiful words we have in verses 6 through 10. In these verses, our verses this morning, Paul offers a wise response to the foolishness of the false teachers. He does so by tapping into the wisdom tradition of Israel with a little nod to some of the best of the Greek wisdom as well. But he doesn't just offer wisdom. He also offers a warning. Choosing to live for money or anything else is not just foolish, it's terminal. He ends the section we're going to read in a moment by using the very provocative word impaled to vividly describe the spiritual consequences of this false wisdom. But let's begin with wisdom this morning and we'll end with the warnings, much as Paul does. In the Bible and in the ancient world at large, wisdom was about discovering the world's pattern and then adjusting yourself to it. It was assumed that there was a pattern and virtue, virtue was the process of aligning yourself with those ideals. As my former apologetic students will know, I like to compare this to a man surfing a wave. That's how ancient people and the Bible itself thinks about wisdom. In contrast, modern people, people today, reject any kind of pattern and invite people to make the pattern out of their own head, to invent it. Again, some of my students will recognize this as the tub of Legos kind of approach where the pieces are just thrown in there, no instructions, no pattern. I only found out recently that the conservative feminist Mary Harrington had perfected the Lego terminology when she described our modern approach to our bodies with the term meat Lego. This perfectly captures, I think, the culture we exist in today. We are constantly told that there is no wave to discover or to merge our lives with. The only truth is your truth, and the quest for virtue has been replaced by the quest for self. 
All we really need, we're told, is to be true to ourselves. Every Disney movie has taught us that from infancy. And so we look not for a plan to which to conform, but we look within ourselves to make up life from ourselves. It is the quest for self. And it is a motto Henry VIII would have found absolutely charming. That being said, yes, there is some truth to the new wisdom. It's not all wrong. We should rejoice in the different gifts God has given us. And pointless tradition, meaningless tradition can be suffocating at times. But Paul knows that true godliness is not merging with your desires, but denying yourself and thereby uniting yourself to Christ. Paul, in our passage today, takes this older, wiser approach, getting everything you want, becoming everything you think you are, will not, in the end, make you happy. And it's not the point of life. Godliness is not about what kind of gain or profit we can get. Our sermon this morning, then, is on the fake prophets of the false prophets, or the false prophets of the false prophets. A clear, clever, maybe a clever title for a wonderfully wise portion of God's word. Would you then stand, please, for the reading of the scriptures, which are this holy wisdom. We'll start at the end of verse 5. The false teachers, Paul writes, are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, that we might be wise, if we would be wise, we must become conformable to your son. For he is wisdom embodied. Everything he says, everything he does is wisdom. And so we must have less of self and more of him. We pray that that would be your good and patient work in us this morning. That your Holy Spirit would take the word of God and then the sacraments and use them to draw us nearer to Christ. We pray, turn our thoughts and our minds from our own wisdom and help us to give ourselves once again unreservedly to him. For we pray it in his most holy name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The words we just read from 1 Timothy 6, they fit seamlessly seamlessly into the wisdom writings of your Bible. In fact, in these verses, Paul utilizes all three of the main wisdom books in your Bible. He writes in these verses like the book of Proverbs. He quotes the book of Job, and he argues on the basis of the book of Ecclesiastes. So there you have the three main wisdom books, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. We'll touch on each of these, but for now, we need to start off by focusing on Ecclesiastes, 
because central to that whole book, if you've ever read it, the whole central question in that book is the same question that's being asked here in our text. What is gain? What is profit? In Ecclesiastes, the author is wrestling with what lasts in a world of death and mayhem. The book searches for lasting profit or gain, and it's a tough lesson and a tough search. The preacher of Ecclesiastes speaks, first of all, of everything that happens under the sun. He calls all of it vanity, not because it doesn't matter or because it isn't real, but because it doesn't last. He concludes that in the final analysis, to use the words of an old song, we are just dust in the wind. And all that we do is just dust in the wind. In response to this reality, says the preacher of Ecclesiastes, we should do two things. One, we should properly enjoy what we have. And two, we must fear the Lord because that is all that will ultimately matter. The last verse of Ecclesiastes calls this, quote, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Now, the wise sayings of Paul about wealth in our passage are rooted in this rich wisdom tradition. Already in chapter 1, you'll remember, Paul told us that the false teachers use Moses unlawfully. They use the law unlawfully. They don't understand what the law is really for. Now, in these verses, he suggests to us that as they use the law unlawfully, so they use the wisdom of the Bible unwisely. They believe that godliness is a way to get gain, that is, material wealth. In fact, the end of verse 5 almost has a sort of mathematical feel to it. Godliness equals gain. In other words, growing close to God, they say, should look and feel like personal advancement. And the false teachers offer new insights, and they unlock mysteries, and, of course, they charge for their services. In response, Paul counters with a far better and far wiser equation. Instead of the simplistic godliness equals gain, Paul counters in verse 6 with godliness plus contentment equals great gain. On the surface, Paul's math may not make sense to us. We don't naturally associate contentment with great gain. When we think about big profits, uh, we tend to think of people who are never satisfied. But as we will see, Paul is following the logic of the cross and not the wisdom of this world. To get us there, to destroy the false teachers and their false prophets, their simplistic equation... He does that really for us, I think, in three steps in these verses and uncovers for us the huge fault in their math, their life math. So today, briefly, probably for the first and last time, I'm going to use a little math in the sermon. I know some of you are very concerned now, uh, but I want you to see with me three things that are wrong with their equation. First, they've missed the invariable variable, the invariable variable. Second, they've missed the multiplying factor. And third, they've missed the unexpected cost. So mathematicians rejoice. Today is your day. So first of all, Paul complicates their little equation 
by reminding them and us of the invariable variable. This happens in verse 7. Paul writes, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Death, death is the invariable variable in life's equation. At the end of your life, all that you've amassed for yourself is always multiplied by zero. Or to put it more simply, you can't take it with you. Or to be even more precise, you can't take anything with you. Paul here is quoting Job 1, verse 21. Quote, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This was the deep wisdom of an incredibly wealthy man who lost everything overnight. Paul was probably also thinking of Ecclesiastes 5.16, quote, this also is a grievous evil. Ecclesiastes is all about grievous evil. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? As one writer has noted, death is the loneliest experience of all. Not only can you not take anything with you, but you also can't take anyone with you. They can sit by your bed, but every human being, every human being dies utterly alone. This is the invariable variable. We will all die. Therefore, life cannot simply be godliness equals gain. If you live for money, power or influence, you are chasing the wind. This is the critical flaw. This is what's missing in the false teaching in Ephesus. As we've been seeing on Sunday evenings, an awareness of death is critical to being sober-minded in life. That is why Ecclesiastes can say that it is, quote, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The false teachers have left out the sobering perspective death provides. Jesus' parable of the rich man in Luke 12 also offers this wisdom, this sober-minded perspective. In the parable, you'll remember, the rich man ends up being condemned. He spent all his time accumulating wealth, and one night God comes to him and says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? But notice this. Jesus also affirms that these things are things that he could have used for God's glory. We can do things in life that last forever. Because he adds then this explanation in Luke 12. So is the one, he says, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Notice, Jesus' issue is not that the rich man was successful The Bible does not glorify poverty, and it doesn't glorify riches either. Rather, it calls us to face the invariable variable of death and use all our talents, all our riches, to God's glory. Jesus' condemnation is that the rich man did not see his wealth as an opportunity for faithfulness. 
Jesus affirms this kind of investment in the Gospel of Matthew when he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Second, the false teachers have left out the multiplying factor. They have missed the invariable variable and they have left out, secondly, the multiplying factor. They are content with simply making a little money off their new teaching. Remember, godliness for them equals gain. But Paul adds in verse 6 that godliness paired with contentment is great gain, big gain, much gain. Contentment works as a multiplier, if you will. It takes all that we have and multiplies it to us. Gain then becomes great gain. Meanwhile, the false teachers, like so many people in our society, are stuck doing the simple math. For them, gain is just one equals one, one plus one, over and over again. This is how it feels to be discontent. When you are discontent, you have one thing and you want to add one more. Life becomes all about adding just one more thing. The old adage is true. When a rich man is asked, how much is enough? The answer is just a little bit more. That's one plus one. One author notes that wealth is a lot like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. And we see that all the time, don't we? People who are already magnificently rich, but need just a little more. In Dante's Inferno, the greedy are kept in the fourth circle of hell. Of course, this is pure fiction. But interestingly, Dante says that their punishment is to push around huge boulders and slam into each other, always wanting, needing more, but never being able to detach themselves from it. In contrast, Paul urges contentment, and he defines that contentment in verse 8. Look at that verse again. Verse 8 reads, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. This is a very important verse that we need to make sure and understand properly. The word for clothing here can mean shelter or a covering. In addition, I think it's very fair to say on the basis of this passage and the rest of the Bible that Paul is using food and shelter as a way of saying, be content with simplicity. He's not saying that if you're homeless and living under a bridge during winter, but you happen to have a shirt and you have a meal that day, just be content, everything is fine. We know that's not what he meant because we have other passages and especially the book of Acts. One of the first things the New Testament church did was to eradicate extreme poverty from the congregation. The Bible always condemns destitution and poverty and calls us to fight against it. You heard some of that in our worship service this morning. God instituted strict laws in the Old Testament to defend against extreme poverty. And in the New Testament, the deacons are to work hard to prevent it in the church. 
In fact, in this very book, remember chapter 5, Paul has called for the enrolling of older widows for a lifetime of care and support so that they are never destitute. So when Paul says, be content with food and clothing, he clearly means be content with simplicity, not destitution. For Paul, this was, of course, a deeply personal issue. You might remember that in his letter to the Corinthians, he reminds them how he refused payment for his own ministry so that his motives could not be called into question. But above everything else, he wrote Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, he says. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Today, in an ugly irony, Paul's words of sufficiency are taken by new false teachers and twisted. Prosperity preachers only quote the end of that passage. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This they turn upside down and I can do all things through Christ becomes a divine promise guaranteeing life success instead of a confession of having learned contentment in the worst of situations because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Paul puts it again so powerfully in 2 Corinthians 12. Faced with a terrible recurring illness, Paul writes these words. Three times I begged, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, this illness. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul, through Christ, has taught us the true key to great gain, the multiplying factor, and it is contentment. It can all be summed up in one beautiful verse of poetry. In Psalm 37, 16, David writes, Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Why? Because godliness with contentment is multiplied. And becomes great gain. So the false teachers have overlooked the invariable variable that is death. And they've left out the power and importance of contentment. Without contentment, life becomes a simple addition problem. Everything is reduced to one plus one. Just one more thing and I'll be happy. Lastly, in verses 9 and 10, Paul uncovers the devastating and unexpected cost of this false equation. Paul writes, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving 
that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice with me a few things. First, it's really important to remember that Paul here is not condemning money, but the love of money. Notice how Paul puts the emphasis all throughout these verses. The emphasis falls on words of desire. Verse 9 reads, those who desire to be rich. And verse 10 reads, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away. Verse 10 is probably a quote from a Greek proverb that calls greed, quote, the capital city of all evils, end quote. Paul does not condemn wealth or success, but the love of money, the serving of two masters. In fact, the Bible is full of examples of people using wealth for good ends and blessing others with it. Part of the reason the early church eradicated poverty was that the believers gave generously, meaning they had extra to give. They were wealthy and they gave it to the deacons to ensure that extreme poverty would never happen in their midst. Wealth is fine so long as it remains a means to a good and not an end of itself, not your purpose in life. If someone sets out to honor God in their work, and they end up wealthy, not because they aimed at that, but because of God's providence, they have nothing to be ashamed of. But we must give account to God for what we have done with what he has given. Remember Jesus' parable of the rich man. He wasn't condemned for success, but how he failed to use that success. And the same is true for all our gifts. You may be talented in other ways, Acting, music, art, sports, academics, medicine, even physical beauty, I would argue, is a resource some of us have more than others. And all of these resources must be used for God's glory. That's the issue. Second, notice with me that the love of money may be the greatest gateway sin ever. The greatest gateway sin ever. What do I mean by that? Well, a gateway drug, you've probably heard that term before. A gateway drug is a lesser, still illegal drug you start with, but then it leads you to heavier, far more deadly forms of addiction. Paul treats love of money that way. He says that it's the root or the starting place for all kinds of evil. Almost no one starts out wanting to become a murderer, from interviews, I don't know if you find those fascinating, I do sometimes, from interviews with famous criminals, we find that many people are surprised to find out that they're even capable of murder. But greed so often, greed so often opens the door to greater and greater sins. The false teacher's little equation of godliness equals profit led them to places they probably could not have imagined they would have gone at the beginning. The end of verse 10 captures this vividly. Paul writes, they have literally impaled themselves. They've done it to themselves. They've impaled themselves with many pangs. It may have started out with a simple desire for more money or to be more socially respected. Teaching esoteric Jewish literature could satisfy both of those desires, giving them a little money, making them more rooted in an accepted tradition in their society. It began there. 
began with little things, but their false equation, their pursuit of pure profit had left them cut off from Christ, trapped, Paul says in these verses, drowned, and then ultimately finally pierced. Now, dealing with wealth is indeed a favorite topic in wisdom literature, both in the Bible and around the world. The book of Proverbs is full of advice on this topic, but the false teachers have missed the vital perspective that death brings. They have also ignored the power of contentment, and the results were disastrous. Quite literally, the outcome of their their math was death itself. But how can we be sure this morning that we will also not fall into this trap? After all, the love of money, as we've seen, is a gateway sin, a slope to all kinds of other disasters. Someone here today might say, well, I'm safe because I don't have much. But remember, it isn't the possession of money that's the problem. It's the love of money. A poor person can be eaten up, can be consumed by the power of greed. So even poverty, even being poor, is no real safe defense against greed. I think there is only one true defense. The only way to finally defeat greed is to be full. And the only way to be full is to truly receive Christ. Jesus offers himself as true food and true drink. He tells the woman at the well, a woman who spent her whole life chasing men as a way of feeling complete. He says, drink of me and you will never thirst again and you will never hunger again. He says in John chapter 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Only we might add hunger and more hunger. In other words, until you really and truly receive Christ and all his fullness, you will never know satisfaction. This is because you see that Christ is not just a wise man who dispenses helpful parables. Of course, he does do that, but he isn't just a wise man. He is wisdom himself. He is holy wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. He doesn't just tell us how to manage our wealth like other wise teachers from different cultures. Rather, he becomes our treasure. This is why Paul can say, for me to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain, even we might add, great gain. Having truly received Christ, Paul cannot live in greed. Paul has sat down to the feast that is Christ and found in him all that he ever wanted. This is so much the case that he can say that everything else in his life has become like rubbish. He counts it as loss, not because he hates his belongings. He just sees them now as completely disposable, useful tools, maybe, but not like Christ, who is essential. This was not a new message. This was the confession of the Old Testament as well. In the Old Testament, this dynamic is expressed in that wonderful statement repeated throughout your Bible, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. Listen again 
to those words from Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. There's the invariable variable of death. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And again, the scriptures say in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Great gain is not the result of simply rearranging your giving or restructuring your priorities. By all means, if God is calling you to do that to his glory, do that. But that is not the ultimate answer. The answer is to come to Christ in such a way that he becomes your treasure. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, the only sure defense against greed is fullness. And that fullness is found only when you really receive the treasure that is Christ. The pearl without price. The last supper your heart will ever need. Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, you have placed riches in your son that we cannot imagine. And when we come to him, every need is met. Help us to come to him. Help us to come to him now through the Lord's Supper. As we eat this bread and we drink this cup, take away from us the hunger for other things. Satisfy us once again, for indeed the Lord is our portion and our hearts can be at ease. Do this through your preached word, and now through the sacrament we pray. In Christ's name, amen.